Brilliant, you guys can grab your seats, but as you do, I just want to encourage you, if there's space at the front, come and fill this stuff up um, at the front. Um, you know, our senior pastors, as you know, have gone on uh, sabbatical. They'll have left a hole in the team, which we're trying to fill, but they'll also left a hole at the front. So if anyone wants to come and sit in these rows, I'll tell you something. No seat is sacred, and the blessing is at the front. And if you don't believe me, just look at this leg room. So you people who are in the cheap seats, the economy seats, if you want to come down the front, even as I introduce today's message, that's absolutely fine. I don't mind if you're moving around. Come and join, and you'll get more from it as you engage and you lean in this morning. So anyway, welcome to church this morning. My name's Sai. If I've not met you before, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm excited to be able to speak to you this morning. And um, December is here, people. Christmas is around the corner. It's the first weekend in December, which means that Many of you will have put up a Christmas tree this weekend, or you will be doing. Have you, have you put up a Christmas tree this weekend? Anybody? Anyone going to put up a Christmas tree this weekend? Good. It's now socially acceptable to have a Christmas tree up. But we all know those people, don't we? They hear the words socially acceptable, and they say, challenge accepted. Those people, they're not going to be confined by our conventions. They're not going to be limited by what we think is socially normal. They're going to see these as barriers that must be broken. I know that because I live with someone like that. So our tree has been up for some time now. It's been up for since like early, mid-November. I know, right? And believe me, that was a compromise. I think my wife would probably have the tree up all year round just to signal that Christmas will always come again. She is crazy about Christmas. She's crazy about Christmas. And... Um, over the years, I've perhaps known for being a bit of a, bit of a humbug. I know you, you look at me and you think, oh, no, not you. You know, you're so jolly. But um, <laughs> sometimes I can struggle to enter into the Christmas spirit. I'm trying to change things now because we've got children. And I want to, like, really get excited about the season. Um, but there's something that always holds me back. And I will tell you what it is. Because it's not the festive fun. Everyone loves a bit of fun. I love fun as much as the next person. And it's not the food. Everyone loves Christmas food. It's not the presents. And you'll be pleased to know it's not spending time with friends or family. I'm all for that. It's Christmas music. Oh, it's better than last service. Last service, it was like 90%. I lost 90% of the room last service. But it seemed like it was more sort of 70% this service. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It just lacks something for me, certain quality that it's not good. It's just, I don't know, I just, I can't get cheerful when I listen to Christmas music. And if you were in my position, I think you'd find that too, because it's on all day, every day, in our house. So when I come home from work and I walk into the kitchen, it's like a department store. It really is, I just can't do it. So a couple of years ago, sort of three or four years ago now, um, I was cleaning out the car, which is uncharacteristic of me. In fact, normally it's like an annual occurrence. It's not like I do it every week. It's like some of you better people. Um, once a year, I clean out the car, and, and I, it's in the middle of summer, so I thought, oh, it's fine, it'll go unnoticed. I accidentally threw away the Christmas CDs. <laughs> and my wife found them in the bin, and I'm telling you, that was the biggest source of marital tension we have faced in the eight years of being married. But you know what? It doesn't work anymore, because everything's streamed these days. So as I was preparing this message, I started looking into whether I could enable some sort of parental controls on our streaming service as a way of limiting the amount of Christmas music I have to listen to. But that's, um, that's it. I mean, you know, I can get some booze. That's fine. 
I'll get you back, it's okay. Because Christmas, as we know, is more than the music, it's more than the presents, more than the gifts, it's more than the fun, it's more than the friends, it's more than the family. We believe here that Christmas is ultimately about Jesus. And today is, of course, the first week of Advent, which is a period where, in the run-up to Christmas, we take time to remember and to reflect on God's greatest gift to this planet, when he sent his son Jesus for us. And we're going to spend the next four weeks in amongst the hustle and bustle of the season, amidst the frantic rushing from place to place to remember what, but more importantly, who Christmas is all about. And we're going to start today by reading from John chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 1. And we're going to start from verse 1. We're going to read right from the beginning of this biography we have of Jesus recorded recorded for us by John. And it starts with these three words. In the beginning. And we can stop there just for one moment because these three words are actually quite important. Because who knows, context is critical. Context is critical. We're about to hear John tell us when we get up to verse 14, which is where we're going, about Jesus coming to this earth. But we need to first understand the context of where he's coming from. And we need to understand a bit of background. For those of you who are sort of box set lovers, this is like the uh, previously in the life of Jesus moment in John 1. He's going right back to the beginning and it's important we take note. I don't know if you're a box set binge watcher. If the uh, stats are to be believed, you probably are. I read an article this week on the BBC that said more than half of adults in the UK watch multiple episodes of the same show back to back at least once per month. And that 10 million people in this survey openly admitted that they'd chosen on occasion to go without sleep in order to cram in more episodes into their evening's viewing. Does that resonate with some of you guys? It gets worse. So if you look at the people between the ages 16 and 24, 82% of these people watch multiple episodes of the same show back to back at least once a month, but one in 10 of those admit to binge watching every single day. This article labeled us as a nation, box set Britain. Something we can be proud of, right? So many people consume content in this way now that streaming services have started to like, introduce a new feature. You may have noticed this. Um, it's called Skip Recap. So if you're watching multiple episodes of a show, it can detect that you've done that, you've just finished an episode, and it will miss that portion at the start that says previously in the show you just watched which is quite useful, right? Particularly if you're on your second or third or maybe sixth episode of the evening. Don't judge me. But I don't know if you've noticed this, because I see a hole in this system. Sometimes when you watch those previously in the show you just watched, it's not just reminding you of things in the previous episode. Some shows, it, it draws on some key plot points from way back. It goes right back to the beginning, or it'll like go back several episodes and try and remind you of certain things that are going to help you make sense of what you're about to see. And that's exactly what John's doing here. He's reminding us of some key plot points that are going to help us make sense of what we're about to read. 
And it's important that we don't skip over this because context is critical. He's about to tell us about Jesus coming into this world. But if we want to truly understand the enormity of what it means for him to come and to what it means to where he's going, we need to know where he's come from. And so we're going to read today, we're going to start in verse 1 of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Do you feel like he's trying to get something through to you there? Sort of really repeating something. When something's repeated so often like this in the Bible, it means it's important. Okay? So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life is the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the context. Let's move on. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and, th and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So without that context, that final verse could be quite confusing. Now, what is the word? Which word was it? How can a word become flesh? But with the context, we now know that the word was Jesus. That he existed before time, that he was part of orchestrating the whole of creation, that he was with God, and that he was God himself. It's important. Context is critical. Verse 14 in the New Living Translation says this, So the word became human and made his home among us. I want us to focus on this word, home. Because for many people, when they think of Christmas, they think of home. The weeks running up to Christmas are some of the busiest times on the roads as many travel near and far to be with friends or family. Many Christmas songs, which you now know I really don't like, devote their entire song to talking about the topic of traveling home for Christmas. Many people have a desire to be home for Christmas. And we've even called this series Coming Home for Christmas. And yet, the heart of the Christmas message is about somebody who left their home. Jesus left his heavenly home to come to our home, to come into our hearts. He chose to leave heaven and come to a place that was not his own for us. In fact, if you look at the Christmas story and the Christmas narrative, almost nobody was home. So Joseph and Mary had been summoned from their home for a census. They weren't at home. The shepherds, well, they were working the night shift, so they weren't at home either. And then the wise men, well, they were probably about as far from home as you can get. They've been traveling for such a long time, and they were so far from home. So why, then, do we long for home? Well, I think for many, 
Home is a place that we associate with belonging. Home is a place where pressure can be replaced with peace. And our failure can find forgiveness. Where we can be the truest us. You can be the truest you. Not the you that everyone sees all week on social. You can just be you. And you can be loved. And oftentimes it's true, isn't it, that home isn't just a place. It's the people. So home is perhaps friends or family or loved ones or parents or children. They're what make home home. And I think that's true for us as well if we choose to follow Jesus, that we can find rest, we can find peace, not in a place, but in a person, in Jesus. And that's my first point is this, home isn't just a place, it's a person. And when there's so much else vying for our attention this festive season, we want to encourage you over these next few weeks, come home. Come home for Christmas. Come back to the real meaning of it all. Come home to Jesus. Our family is directionally challenged. We get lost a lot. Now, we used to sort of be in denial about this. My wife and I used to fight about who had the better sense of direction. Now we just admit defeat. Like, neither of us know where we're going at all. I had no idea what we would have done if we were born into an age without Google Maps. Yeah? So it's absolutely awful. So we get lost all the time. Sometimes we even get lost on our way home, particularly if we've gone somewhere that we've not been before. We don't know how to find our way home. We know where we want to go. We just don't know how to get there. And that's my point. Your destination is not determined by your intention. Your destination is determined by your direction. So you might know where you want to go, but unless you know how to get there, you're not going to get there. Our destination is determined not by our intention, but by our direction. So you can have the best will in the world, but if someone knocks you slightly off course, then you're going to be far from where you plan to be. Jesus told several stories about being lost, which is great because I can really relate to them. And maybe you can too. Hopefully you can relate to these stories. But if you're one of those people that's just been blessed with that sense of direction, I both envy you, but I pray that you will find some relevance in these stories. In fact, he told three stories back to back. It was like the original biblical box set. We find it in Luke 15. He, he's, got, he's got people around him, he's teaching, and he tells three stories about three lost things. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Now, if you've hung around church long enough, you'll likely have heard the story of the lost sheep. We love the story of the lost sheep. It's about a, about a shepherd who has 100 sheep, and one of them sort of wanders off, goes missing, and the shepherd isn't content with the fact that he has 99 sheep. In fact, he leaves the 99 sheep in the open country and goes in search of the one missing sheep, which reminds us that our God is the one who cares for the one. That he cares about the eternal significance of every single person. And it doesn't matter who they are, he won't be content until he finds them. And then if you've been around, you'll also have heard the story of the lost son, probably many times. This is the highly emotive, action-packed season finale 
of this three-part series. You know, it tells this story of this, this son who, who thinks the family business is beneath him. He cashes in his share. He abandons the family. He goes on this wild bender, lives a reckless lifestyle. He spends everything he has. He parties hard and ruins his life in the process. And he finds himself in rock bottom. And he doesn't know where to go. He's lost. But then... When he finally decides to come home, we read that the father not only allows him back, but he wants him back. And it's a story about a restored relationship. And then we have this story in the middle. You ever annoyed by those episodes in the series that don't really seem to have anything happen? You know, the filler episodes. You know, you spend an hour of your life that you can't get back, and you're like, great, well, nothing happened here. There was no plot developed. These characters didn't develop in any meaningful way. I just sort of wasted an hour of my evening. And we can maybe think that on the surface when we look at the lost coin, that it's some sort of filler story. But I want to just share it with us for a moment, and I want to explain to you something that I saw. It says this in Luke 15, verse 8. This is Jesus' words. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? That's pretty much it. You know, it's not long. It's like a third of the length of the, the story of the sun. It's half the length of the story of the sheep. It's a tiny little story stuck in the middle. It's not very exciting. There's no threat to life like there is to the sheep. There's no relationship to restore like there is for the sun. In fact, the coin is an inanimate object. It didn't even go anywhere. It's not like it wandered off accidentally like the sheep. It's not like it abandoned the woman deliberately, like the son. And then I was struck by the importance of this story. See, as Christians, sometimes we can think that people that are lost are those that have sort of wandered off, drifted away from church. Or we can think that People that are lost are the people who are living this reckless lifestyle. They have no sort of concern for anything greater than the now. They're just out there. They're partying hard. They're throwing caution to the wind. You only live once. And yet, I realize this, what this story tells us. We can become lost even in the house. The coin was always in the house. And yet, it had become lost. So we can be in the house of God the whole time. And we can still become lost. Have you ever felt lost? Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like you don't really know where you are in your life right now? Or maybe you felt like, I don't really know which direction to take next. It sounds like lost to me. Don't know where you are or don't know where to go next is literally the definition of lost. And we've all been there. And chances are we'll all be there again. And there's no shame in that. Maybe you're one of those people who loses things around the house quite a lot. So I feel like I can sort of have a bit of a fair excuse because people, things don't actually stay where I put them in my house. This is the price I pay for having such a wonderful wife. I lose things in the house all the time. But maybe things do stay where you put them in the house. You just can't remember where you put them. Maybe you're one of those people. And you know, they're there somewhere, but you don't know exactly 100% where. They're there somewhere. They're just buried under a pile of other stuff. 
And if you had to find them, you know you could, but you don't know quite where they are. And because you know they're there somewhere, you think, ah, oh, it's not too much of a big deal, right? Well, I want to ask you this. If you don't know where it is, it's technically lost to you. And I think sometimes our lives can be a bit like this. If we haven't seen something in our lives for a little while, we can forget where it is altogether. We can forget exactly where it is. We know it's important, and if we had to find it, we probably could drudge it up, but it's probably buried there under another whole pile of things that come into our lives. And my question this morning is this, around these three things. What things in your life have become buried under a pile of less important things? When was the last time you truly felt joy? Where were you the last time you really felt accepted? And have you, somewhere along the way, misplaced your peace? These three things I think we can lose, even as we're in the house. And they might not have gone anywhere, but unless we know where they are, they're essentially lost to us, just like the coin. It's there somewhere, but we don't know. And as I was preparing for this message at the start of this series, I realized that just because many of us here will consider this place here, C3 Church, to be our home, it doesn't mean that we can't lose sight of some of the important things in life. Even as we live for God as wholeheartedly as we're able, things can become lost even in the service, even as we serve God. Which is why my title for today's message is this, Missing in Action. What things have we lost along the way? And I want to spend the remaining time we have today talking about how in the busyness of it all, in amongst the comings and goings of being part of a modern church community, we can do three things. How we can learn to truly accept God's acceptance. How we can protect our peace. But first I want to talk about this. How we can guard our joy. So my first point is this. In order to guard our joy, we must find grace for the grudge. One of the biggest joy killers in life, apart from Christmas music, is unforgiveness. When we hold a grudge. And it's funny because we use this phrase, hold a grudge, like the same way we use the phrase, hold a pen or hold a book. Like we're really in control, and if at any time we wanted to, we could just put these things down. And yet, the reality is sometimes different. When we hold a grudge, oftentimes it's not so much that we have a hold of it, but it, it has a hold of us. And this is really important that we recognize because I ask you this question. Who do you think suffers most when I hold a grudge? Me. I do. Sure, it's nice to... No one ever really wants to be on the receiving end of a grudge, right? That's not particularly nice. But I truly believe this. The person who suffers most, the person who misses out on the most, the person that loses the most when they hold a grudge is the grudge holder not the person on the receiving end. In fact, if you're one of those 
silent brooding types. And if you're not one, you will know one. You know, the people who are like really angry, but they would never say. Then not only is that person suffering the most, they might actually be the only person suffering from holding this grudge. Now, the other person might be blissfully unaware they've done anything at all to offend anyone because most of us don't go around life trying to offend other people. But regardless of that, whether you're strong, strong brooding, silent type or you're like an angry person, we all suffer when we hold a grudge because we let bitterness become a barrier to God's blessing. We let bitterness become a barrier to God's blessing. And this is a serious thing. Because, watch this. Whether or not I choose to forgive somebody else, it doesn't affect that person's relationship with God. If they've dealt with it, they've dealt with it. If I forgive them, it makes no difference. If I don't forgive them, it makes no difference. Whether I choose to forgive somebody or not, it has no effect on their relationship with God. But it does have an re- effect on my relationship with God. Jesus said that as much several times, both directly and through stories. He tells the story of an unmerciful servant. On another occasion, he said that we shouldn't judge, or perhaps we will be judged. But most clearly, he says it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. He says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's only half the story, though. If you think that wasn't clear enough, wait till you see what he says in verse 15. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is deadly serious. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The state of my soul depends in part on my decision to forgive. The state of my soul depends in part on my decision to forgive. But they don't deserve it. No. But neither do we deserve the forgiveness that's freely available to us. But what they did was so wrong. Yes. And listen to this. Forgiveness doesn't make it right. It makes you right. Forgiveness doesn't make it right. It makes you right with God. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to the Ephesians, and we should listen to these because he puts it in very plain and very expressive and emotive language. He said this in Ephesians 4, verse 27, don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Do you know what a foothold is? I'll tell you. A foothold is a secure place from which further progress can be made. I'll say it again. A foothold is a secure place from which further progress can be made. Now, I can't speak for you, but I don't want the devil to make any further progress in my life. I don't want the devil climbing up into my life. I don't want him clambering over my marriage. I don't want him climbing over the relationships with my friends and family. When the devil comes, he wants to divide. And when we hold a grudge, we give him an opportunity to take it further. But I'll tell you one thing. What beats a foothold every time is forgiveness. Because listen to this. When we forgive, 
the foothold disappears. And when the foothold disappears, the enemy falls. When we forgive, the foothold disappears. And when the foothold disappears, the enemy falls. We absolutely must find grace for the grudge. Secondly, this. If we are going to be people who learn to accept God's acceptance, then we must shake off the shame. We must shake off the shame. For many, home is supposed to be a place of acceptance. A place where you can be the truest you, we said it already, and be loved just for who you are. Not for the witty tweets and not for the posy selfies, not for the work you do and your job. Just for you. Just for being you. Where people truly know you and yet still accept you. And I've got good news for you. In fact, this is the good news. If you have accepted Jesus, God has accepted you. If you have accepted Jesus, God has accepted you. But for many, there's a recurring and nagging thought that stops us truly experiencing this acceptance. And that's the thought that we're not good enough. We're not good enough. Can I share something personal with you just for a moment? For many years of my life, I found myself limited by the feeling that I wasn't enough. I didn't pray enough. I didn't read my Bible enough. I wasn't kind enough. I wasn't generous enough. I wasn't a good enough son. I wasn't a good enough husband. Perhaps I'm not a good father. I just wasn't enough. But over the years, I truly believe this, that God has helped me to see this. And when I feel that, because sometimes, if I'm honest, I still feel it. But when I feel it now, I say these words. I am enough because Jesus is enough. I am enough because Jesus is enough. And I'm not only enough for God, I am enough for me. Because the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in me. And if it's good enough for God, it's good enough for me. You see, people think insecurity is worrying about what other people think about you. Security isn't just about what other people think about you. It's about what you think of you. It's about how you see yourself. And some people spend their lives beating themselves up over something that God has already dealt with. You know, when we accept Jesus, we are no longer defined by what we've done, but we are defined by what he has done. Jesus paid the ultimate price for you. If you accept him, he's paid the price for everything that you could ever do and everything you've done in the past. It's done. It's paid for. But for some people, accepting God's forgiveness is kind of step one. It's the easy bit. It's forgiving yourself where it gets tough. And there's a word for that. It's called shame. And I'll tell you what shame is. Shame is simply this. It's the enemy reminding you of your past in order to limit your future. You see, God cannot stop. God, God's forgiveness for you cannot be stopped by the enemy. 
The enemy cannot stop God forgiving you, but he can stop you feeling forgiven. Shame is the enemy reminding you of your past in order to limit your future. But I want to tell you something. The work on the cross, that was no partial work. Right? So when Jesus hung there and he died for you and for me, he didn't say, do you know what? Yeah, it's, it's kind of done. Do you know what he said? It is finished. It is done. It is dealt with. It was done then. It's done now. It's done for all time. It's not a partial work. We are born again. We are new creations, people. The old is gone and the new is here. And I want to tell you something. When you feel shame sneaking into your thought life, you need to take captive that thought and make it obedient to Christ. I'll tell you what the Bible says. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives life and sets you free from the law of sin and death. And do you know what else it says? He who the Son sets free, and you better celebrate with me about this, is free indeed. You'll shake off the shame. Shake it off. We have to guard our joy. We have to learn to accept God's forgiveness and his acceptance. And finally, we need to protect our peace. And in order to protect our peace, we need to learn to walk free from worry. It seems there's no escape today from the pace in which we live life. Everything is available instantly. People rush from place to place. We're always connected, always contactable. And if we're not careful, we miss out on this important gift, peace. When we read in the Bible, when the prophets tell of when Jesus is going to be born, they refer to him and they say he's going to be known as four things. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and what? Prince of peace. Jesus is the embodiment of peace. He was God's gift of peace to us. And even as he was preparing to leave this earth, as he was preparing to die, his parting gift to us, he says, is peace. Watch what he says here in John 14. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Now, that's interesting because we think it might be a sign of our times. And yet, thousands of years ago, Jesus said he is giving them something that the world cannot give. Peace. And then he says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. We're closing in a minute. Band, you can come back. The statistics would say that more people than ever struggle with anxiety in one form or another. The definition I found of anxiety is this, a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease about something with an uncertain outcome. Do you worry? Do you worry about whether you'll have enough money? Do you worry about whether your kids will grow up to be nice people? Do you worry about your health? 
or that of a family member or a friend? Do you worry about your job? Or maybe you just worry about England's chances in the World Cup. I worry. Sometimes about the small things, sometimes about the big things, but always about the uncertain things. See, this definition rings true for me. The things that are certain, they don't cause me to worry. They're in my control, or they're in control. It's the things that are uncertain that cause me to worry. It's because I don't know what's gonna happen, and oftentimes I can't control the outcome. And I like to be in control. And chances are, you do too. And this is why I believe that peace is something that the world can never give. Because there are things that are not and can never be in human control. But we believe in a God who is in control. He knows the beginning from the end and he knows that squishy bit in the middle. And so I believe this, the anecdote to worry is surrender. Surrender control. Philippians 4 verse 6, Paul writes and he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends, which means goes beyond all human understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious. Present your requests to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. So there's something that comes from surrender? Security. Some things will never be in our control. Surrender control. So when anxiety attacks, surrender. Don't surrender to the anxiety. Surrender control to God. Worry will make a fool of us all. Fear will make a slave of us all. We sung earlier, didn't we? And we'll sing again. We do not have to be slaves to fear because we are children of God. Because when we cast our cares onto him, we can truly walk free from worry because he cares for you. Do you know he cares for you? He knows everything about you. He knows you, the truest you, the inner you. And he loves you. And he won't let your foot slip. We're closing now, but as I do, I just want to invite you as we start this journey together towards Christmas to not get lost along the way. In the busyness of life, to not lose sight of these three important things. We must guard our joy and find grace for that grudge. Who do you need to go and forgive? We need to learn to accept God's acceptance and shake off the shame that will so readily hold us back and limit us. And we need to protect our peace and learn to walk without worry. And finally, let's choose to remember this Christmas, what it's all about. Not the fun, not the food, 
not the friends or the family, or even that Christmas music. Let's remember it's about Jesus who left his home on a rescue mission for you and for me to start step one of God's magnificent and wonderful plan for the redemption of mankind to restore us to a relationship of him in Christ Jesus. Come, why don't we stand together and why don't we worship God?